Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. In this two-party system, both sides feel like if the other side managed to take total power, like that would be it for their way of life or for for American democracy. And so the, the thing that we've got to do is keep the other side out of power, which then fuels more polarization. And hello, 2020. Hello and welcome to Desert Clan Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. One of the most common questions I get is for all that I talk about polarization and problems in American democracy, isn't the problem simply that we're a two-party system? Don't we just need more parties? Now, under our current rules, that's not going to work. But you could imagine structures, which is how most other countries do work, where you have proportional representation, where you do permit multi many parties to compete constructively. Then you have more polls in the debate represented, potentially more space for bargaining. I tend to be a bit skeptical. It's our core problem, but I also tend to favor proportional representation and the solutions that would make us uh, a, a multi-party system. But people I really respect do think it is our core problem. And one of those people is Lee Drutman, who is a senior fellow in the political reform program at the New America Foundation. He is a political scientist, the co-host of the great podcast, Politics in Question, which a couple of different political scientists come together and talk about politics. And he's also the author of a book that came out right about the same time mine did called Breaking the Two-Party Doom Loop, The Case for Multi-Party Democracy in America. And I want to say, I really recommend this book. Um, I on some level recommend all the books uh, from people who come on, on the show. But, but this is a really good piece of work to try to understand the way our party system evolved and the ways in which different fundamental rules to party systems can create very different outcomes in the way a political system functions. I think Lee is probably more optimistic uh, in how much would change and in whether it could we could get to that change than I am um, if you went to a multi-party. But he has certainly convinced me over time that this is something people should support, should try to figure out ways to do, and at least should think hard about as a contributor to our current gridlock paralysis and unbelievably high stakes collisions. As always, my email is EzraKleinShow at Box.com. Here is Lee Drutman. Lee Drutman, welcome to the show. Hey, it's, it's a real pleasure to be with you, Ezra. Long, long time coming. I've been excited to do this for a bit. So I, I want to start in one of the theories that holds up the current system. What is median voter theorem and why is it wrong? Oh, that's a great place to start. So, Isn't it? I, I thought hard about this. Yes. Well, <laughs> start in the middle. The, the median voter theorem is this idea that the parties should converge on the political center and that's because there's some median voter who is sort of, you know, unsure whether to vote for the Democratic or the Republican Party, and the balance of power hangs with that median voter. Now, uh, you know, we could spend a whole episode on why the median voter theory is wrong, but, you know, I think that the problem is, uh, one, it assumes that voters have unidimensional preferences, which is just not the case. It, it assumes that parties can just sort of converge on the center willy-nilly because parties are these unilateral actors instead of the complicated coalitions of groups and, and office holders and donors that they really are. Uh, you know, assumes that there's only one national election when there are 435 House elections and 100 Senate elections, as well as 50 state elections for president. Uh, and the median voter there is not the median voter across the country. And, you know, it, it also assumes that voters can actually tell where the parties are and can sit somewhat independent of the parties and aren't, in fact, influenced by their partisan loyalties to think about what they actually want from the parties. So it, it makes all kinds of 
assumptions that are incredibly simplistic about how politics works. And, you know, I think it led a lot of political analysts uh, and a lot of political scientists to think that, you know, it, it all works out because, you know, parties converge on the center. And, you know, maybe that sort of explained the the way American politics worked in 1957 when the, the theory initially came out and was popularized, but it, it doesn't really match the facts and hasn't matched the facts for a long time. It'll sound to people a little bit like this is a wonky place to start and hell, it's my podcast. So, so here we are. But there's a reason I want to stay in this for one second, because I think this as an implicit structure to how we think about the two-party system and how we don't understand why it's failing is really important. So I want to bring in one other claim you make in the book and then one claim that I want to make here. So you also say that one of the assumptions of median voter theorem, going back to when Downs proposed it, is that voters are going to care about policy over partisanship, which I'd like to hear why you think that isn't true. And then second, you gestured at this, but if the median voter dominated American politics, Republicans would have won, I guess, one of the past seven presidential elections. Democrats would control the Senate and we'd be in a very different political system with very different structures of political power. So median voter theorem is also a slightly odd idea when um, the decisive voter is, depending on which institution you're looking at, somewhere between, let's call it 1.5 and in the Senate, six to seven points to the right of the actual median voter. Yeah. So those are both super important addendums. And like I said, I'm sure we could do a whole show on the median voter. Uh, so and we are. Yeah, <laughs> well, maybe, maybe, maybe we are. So uh, to the question of do voters care about policy or politics or partisanship, mostly uh, we've seen time and again that voters care much more about partisanship than they do about policy because voters change their policy preferences a lot more readily than they change their policy preferences. Now, there are some folks probably- You mean then they change their of, party preferences? Then they change their party preferences, yeah. They change their policy preferences far more than they change their party preferences. And you and I care about policy, and a lot of folks who listen to this podcast care about policy, but I I would submit that even even a lot of us have updated our policy positions to fit with our partisanship over the years. As for the the point about, you know, the median voter nationwide is probably left of center, but because of the way that the Senate disproportionately benefits uh, conservative rural states and therefore the Electoral College overweights rural states and also because of the way that that it, even in the House and even without gerrymandering, Democrats would over-concentrate their votes in uh, lopsided urban districts. The median district is slightly to the right of the median voter, and the median state is even more to the right of the median voter. So even if we assume the median voter was correct, and you know, there's a stylized version of it that's like maybe sort of reasonable to assume, although I think it, miss it still misses a lot. But even so, our political institutions... Uh, are not reflecting the median voter. This is going to be the setup for the rest of the conversation, because as I understand what you are arguing in the book, it is that a multi-party system will, maybe in one telling of it, give the median or maybe the modal voter an ability to choose a party that is closer to what they actually want, and then also give the parties more ability to bargain and compromise as they're going about their, their business. But I think to get to that, we have to get into what is what is the nature of America's system. And one of the claims you make in the book that I think is pretty important is it's easy for people to say, well, we've had a two-party system more or less the for the whole of the country, and it's always worked pretty well. And so what's the big deal? Like, how, how can the two-party system be the problem? But you make the argument that in the period in which we think of American politics as working best, probably the, the, the 20th century American politics era... We actually had a four-party system. Tell me about that. Yeah. So uh, it's true that we have had basically, in, in name at least, a, a two-party system with Democrats and Republicans going back to you know, 1860, which is longer than most democracies have, have been around. But 
Prior to the modern era, those parties were, were really these very loose confederations of state and local parties. And, you know, the persistent criticism of American parties was that they didn't really stand for anything because all they, you know, did as a, as a national party was get together every four years and argue over who should be their president. And, you know, that created a kind of loose jointed nature that I think worked reasonably well with our political institutions in order to uh, legislate. But I think it also came at a, a, a very high cost in that it preserved uh, a lot of uh, unfair uh, racial hierarchies in the South. Uh, and, you know, around the mid-century, parties basically were indistinguishable from each other at a national level. But you had you know, within those parties, within the Republican Party, you had liberal Republicans who, you know, mostly came from New England and and the the West Coast and some cities, and you had conservative Democrats who came largely from the South, uh, some you know some from the the plains and the other rural parts of the country, and what that meant is that on different issues, different groups could come together to to work out agreements. And because the Republican Party and the Democratic Party were both these kind of broad overlapping coalitions that really, you know, again, more of a four party system, uh, it, it didn't seem as high stakes who won the presidency. We were going to get a, you know, a similar similar set of policy outcomes regardless. And the parties were going to work together. Uh, because there was considerable overlap in their priorities. Can I can I draw something very specific out in yeah. in this moment? Because I think it's important for the moment we're in. So we're speaking about a less than a week. My God, politics moves quickly right now after the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And one thing that has happened um, in the past couple of Supreme Court vacancies is that, in particular, Mitch McConnell has played them as a kind of blood sport which is relatively new to American politics. And I think one way of reading this is actually that it's a reasonable, even rational response to the stakes of Supreme Court uh, nominations becoming so much higher. Uh, nominees used to be much more ideologically unpredictable. They were much less ideological in general. I mean, there's all these measures of like how often they strayed from their parties, et cetera. But the parties themselves were less ideological, which is part of why that was. And so I actually wanted to ask if you thought that's a reasonable read of what's happening right now, which is that in kind of 20th century American politics, when this tradition was around that Supreme Court nominees were considered somewhat non-ideologically, not literally always, but in, in general, if you were qualified and not completely extreme like Robert Bork, you could make your way through if that just reflected parties that were themselves not that ideological and hence nominated all kinds of people and just the stakes of each Supreme Court situation were lower. And so they didn't need to be played so hard for advantage. But now that it's like the parties nominate their most reliable ideological foot soldiers, of course, it's become a super ideological vote that the parties will do anything to win because the consequences are so profound. Well, I think that's exactly right. And, you know, if you look back at the history of the court, you know, a, a lot of justices who turned out to be quite liberal were uh, nominated by Republicans. And you know, part of that is also that judges didn't have this uh, sort of conservative legal infrastructure or liberal legal in infrastructure. Judges were just judges. And, there wasn't this whole sort of pipeline like the Federalist Society that made sure that if you're going to if you're if your aspiration is to be a justice of the Supreme Court, you better you know make sure that you're a reliable conservative or you're a reliable liberal or else you're never going to get nominated. So it's you know, it, it is exactly what you say that that the, there was just not a clear democratic ideology because it was a mix of liberal and conservative views. And there was not a clear Republican ideology because it was a mix of liberal and conservative views. And you know, aspiring justices didn't try to cast themselves in strong partisan molds because, you know, in fact, the, the it was the opposite to get nominated that you wanted somebody who could you know be seen as a as a compromise nominee and who could get 60 votes in the Senate. That was before we got rid of the judicial filibuster. Uh, well, we, we, we're going to come to the filibuster. <laughs> so 
Great. We have a we have a four party system for much of the mid century period, but we've always had officially a two party system. So why does America have a two party system? What's the what it, what is rooted in our political um, structure that leads to that general broad outcome? Well, uh, we have first past the post elections. That's the main reason. And that's what does a- that mean? That that means for for those uh, those playing along at home, we have system we have a, an electoral system of single winner districts in which the person who gets the plurality of the vote wins, and that's a system that tends to discourage third and fourth parties because those parties are uh, treated as spoilers. So you know they become the home of of fringe of fringe characters, and everybody who has ambition channels it into the two major parties. And on top of that, we have an electoral college uh, to elect the president, which also uh, strengthens the force of those two parties as dominant and, again, makes third parties spoilers. So everything in our political institutions is set up to really punish third parties and channel all the political energy into one of the two parties. And you know, that, that was uh, not something that is enshrined in the Constitution. Nowhere in the Constitution will you find that that's the system America was designed to have. It was basically, at the time, it was the only system of voting around. It was a 1430 British countryside invention, which just kind of populated the the colonies and just sort of became how you do elections at that time. It wouldn't be until the mid-19th century that other systems of voting would be developed and you know not until 1899 that any country would adopt a form of proportional representation. I, I want to draw out that logic there. So in a first pass and post system, let's imagine a polity. Let's say, uh, as Mitt Romney said the other day, we are a center-right nation. And so 55% of the country would like some form of right-wing governance. And so we're a first-past-the-post system, and you have a Democratic Party that gets 45% of the vote. You have a Republican Party that gets 45% of the vote. And you have a Libertarian Party that gets 10% of the vote. So in a uh, first-past-the-post system, you have a deadlock between the Democratic and Republican parties. Um, And I probably should have said the Democrats get 46 and the Republicans get 44. So you have a majority of the country wants right-wing governance, but they get a Democratic party um, in, in, in power. Whereas if you have some form of proportional representation and you have the libertarians getting 10% and the Republicans getting 44, that's 54% for those kinds of parties and they can form a, a coalition and the Democrats um, are, are, are in the minority. Is that the, the fundamental issue that the third parties become spoilers because um, the more substantial portion of the vote you get as a third party, the more of a spoiler you become. So that like entire space between zero and you are one of the two major parties is just you screwing over the party closer to you rather than the party further from you. Yeah, that's that 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 is a, a fair rendition of the reason that we uh, don't really have third parties. So why didn't we change that? If all these other countries, you have a chart in the book showing that actually America is one of the only countries with only two major political parties among advanced democracies. Why, why, why didn't we change it? What's your explanation for why we've been more stuck here than some of our peer nations? Well, you know, there was a moment in the you know early 20th century when there was a lot of experimentation and a lot of reform energy, and there were a lot of a lot of ideas about what we should do. And one of those ideas was to become a more proportional democracy. In fact, a, a lot of cities became uh, proportional systems. But the first, for whatever reason, the reform energy of the progressive movement went into having primaries as a way to to kind of bust up what was seen as a corrupt two party system, and not into proportional representation. And, you know, I, I don't I don't know what the debates were at the time in, in detail, but that for whatever reason, that became seen as the way to make America more democratic, whereas other, you know, at the same time, uh, most of Western Europe was deciding that the proportional representation was the fairer way to go. You, you say something in the book that I was embarrassed that I didn't know, which is that America's system of party primaries is reasonably unique in the world. Can you talk a bit about that? How do how do other countries, I mean, they do have parties and somebody has to be picked in the party to run. So how does it work? They have parties and 
the parties get together as organizations, private organizations, and decide who their candidates are. Now, this varies from country to country. There are a lot of systems that are party list systems in which as a voter, you vote only for the political party. And then you just, you know, then based on how well your party does, whoever is is on the list gets gets the seats up to how many there are. Even in countries that run individual candidates for for districts, you know, that there's a there, there's a party machine or a party organization. And in some cases, you know, you can buy your way in as a member. Uh, you know, in other cases, it's just sort of a, a an organization that decides amongst itself. And that's kind of the norm. Uh, and that's how uh, you know, every other you know, democracy uh, lets its parties choose their candidates. So, so let me translate that into American political language. So in other countries, these corrupt party mechanisms or groups have like local political bosses who choose the candidates and people get to vote on with no input from the electorate itself. Why would you possibly want that? Well, now you're speaking the language that progressive reformers were speaking in the early 20th century when they did away I'm with. I'm sometimes even considered a progressive reformer. <laughs> well, now, now we now 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 we see why. Um, and I think what voters get is they get more choices. So if two parties are corrupt, it's a lot easier to maintain that corruption. You know, it's if if there are five parties competing, you know, there's going to be likely one or two parties that can fight back against that corruption and offer a different set of platforms, a different set of policies that will be more popular with voters so that there's more competition that disciplines that corruption. And I, I think that's a fair bargain to have. I'll be honest that I was trying to, to pull a slightly different answer out of you. So I'm going to I'm going to hit it more explicitly, which is that in America, we have a real negative view of political parties as institutions. The country was founded by men who thought political parties were bad, though they went on to form a couple of them. And so if you begin with the idea that you should have zero political parties and they're a threat to the country and then you end up getting two. Well, I know that in polls, people say like, yeah, it'd be better if we had more parties. In general, people don't seem to like political parties. Um, and they and, and the reason I ask that question is that the idea that you would leave the choosing of the candidates to a political party is framed as corrupt, even though, you know, for instance, you wouldn't get Donald Trump under that scenario. And I've always thought it's very telling that even as the Democratic Party was watching the Republican Party get taken over by a demagogic outsider uh, because the the Republican Party had lost control of its own primaries. They were nevertheless weakening the power superdelegates had in the Democratic Party to keep somebody like Donald Trump from ever winning power. So it's like you're watching this failure of party control over there, and they're actually following in that direction. Technically, I mean, that had to do with dynamics from the Bernie Sanders campaign and other things that were specific to the, to the Democrats. But what you see in both parties over time is whatever they might want to do, there is a rhetorical illegitimacy to the idea that parties should have much power in American politics. And that seems to me to make sensibly talking about parties and ways of reforming the party system more difficult. Yeah. I mean, I think Americans are more ambivalent about parties than your your comments make them out to be. Uh, you know, and I, I think there's a challenge that both parties have, which is that they are really broad, big tent coalitions with a lot of different factions. And the only way to uh, keep those factions all feeling like they have a stake in the party is to have a relatively open contest where the, the party leaders can say, well, look, you know, we had fair and open rules and, uh, you know, Joe Biden won. So it's it's legitimate. And that's a way of of maintaining a really, really broad tent and making it it feel like people at least at least had a fair chance in the process. You know, at the same time, I, I felt like there were a lot of Democratic voters in the primary who said, I don't know, there's like five or six candidates who would all be great. Uh, who am I to, to decide among them? You know, uh, like this is incredible pressure. I, you know, I wish somebody else would would make that decision. And, you know, I think if 
there were fewer people competing in in each party. There were more parties and fewer people competing to be the the sort of standard bearer or candidate for each party. It would be easier for the voters of that party to feel like you know, well, I'm a I'm a democratic socialist and there's a democratic socialist party and I feel pretty good about the the candidates that we've chosen for Congress. Whereas when there's just one democratic party, you've got to find a way to to make all the groups feel. You know, included, and this this gets to a, a fundamental problem with American parties is that they're just really weak as institutions because they kind of have to be because the only way to maintain that big tent is to sort of say, well, everyone's welcome, and then you know you all can fight it out, and then whoever wins, that's who our party is, and that's how Trump won, uh, and that's how Sanders very well could have won. Yes, Clancho will be back after a short break. So you make an argument in the book, the core argument of the book, is that the two-party system feeds polarization, feeds dysfunction. Why? Well, what we have now is a true two-party system, and I think that's an important starting point to understand why this sort of what I call the, the doom loop is happening now, uh, because we've lost the uh, the overlap that we once had. And now we have two uh, very distinct parties, which are competing for this narrow majoritarian power. And they stand for very different values for their very different parts of the country. And the way that they win elections is by holding their coalition together, by making the other party seem more extreme, and by uh, you know, by really demonizing the other party, that you know, creates higher stakes for the election. It, it begins to justify more anti-democratic uh, behavior, and which further raises the stakes, which further makes things seem more threatening. And in this two-party system, both sides feel like if the other side managed to take total power, like that would be it for their way of life or for for American democracy. And so the the thing that we've got to do is keep the other side out of power, which then fuels more polarization. And hello, 2020. Sure. But when you look at when you look around the world, and this is one of the um, questions I always have about this thesis, and you look at other countries, yes, America is in a particularly bad moment right now. And Donald Trump is a deep embarrassment. But there have been times when American the American political system was working reasonably well and other systems, including many multi-party systems, were collapsing into fascism, into Nazism, into all kinds of democratic backsliding, into all kinds of authoritarianism, and just all kinds of problems, instability, governments falling apart, unable to form coalitions, you know, like the the whole plethora of of, of problems. So what is it about multi-party systems that are protective here and and if there is something then why isn't there a more obvious difference between how well the multi-party systems have traditionally been governed and how and what they've been able to achieve in America well uh, one i think there is an obvious difference and you know one of the things that convinced me that uh, multi-partyism w- would be good for America is just kind of looking at the accumulated literature uh, of the performance of proportional multi-party democracies compared to majoritarian plurality democracies. And the the performance is consistently better. Now, that's not to say that there aren't collapses or problems in individual countries, but, you know, as a as a political scientist and as a social scientist, I, I look at the aggregate and at an aggregate, multi-party democracies have voters who feel better about how their political system works, higher levels of uh, voter participation, voters who uh, you know, are, are overall just just happier, they're, they're, they're more spending on, on, uh, on social welfare programs, which you know, I think are, are good, uh, less economic inequality. And yeah, it's not to say that any system of government is perfect. And I, you know, I, I know when, whenever you argue that something would be better, that there's a tendency to say, oh, well, well, th- well, here are the problems with multi-party democracy. And yeah, I mean, politics is hard and politics is especially hard in a moment in which the issues of national identity are front and center in which you, know, you have urban rural divides. And these things are affecting democracies you know, uh, across the world. But you know, when you look at the, the proportional democracies, 
they have political coalitions that are readjusting. So throughout the Western democracies, there's probably about a, a 15 to 20% support for a kind of right-wing populist party. But what you see in the multi-party proportional systems is that uh, you can kind of create a, 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 a shifting coalition that is a way to kind of push those parties out of power, or if they have to share power, they're a junior partner, and you know, often quickly they, they collapse because their entire... Uh, Raison d'etre is is an anti-system party. But in the U.S., you know, Donald Trump can take over the Republican Party. I mean, I, I, Donald Trump is basically a, the Donald Trump's, you know, he gets, you know, 30 percent of the of the vote in the in the primary. You know, maybe 40 percent of people are Republican. So by that logic, I mean, he's basically a 12 percent party. But because of the strength of partisanship and because of the binary nature of our politics, uh, he gets to take over the entire Republican Party. And there's no alternate place for people who are right of center to go than otherwise to embrace him. And so uh, unlike, you know, uh, proportional democracies where you can have uh, sort of realignment, shifting coalitions to marginalize extremism in the U.S. or the U.K. to, to some extent, uh, once, uh, you know, a, a kind of Trump-like extremist figure takes over one of the parties, that's kind of game over. So I want to make sure that as we talk about this, we're we're not being too theoretical with it and we're, we're trying to imagine it in the American political system. So yeah, as I understand the way you think about it, you sort of think about politics as having two dimensions and, and, and four quadrants. So you can be sort of populist or conservative on, on economics, and then you can be sort of like progressive or reactionary on questions of identity and demographics. Um, I think you described it slightly differently, but I, I basically put it there. And what you say is that like a two-party system has room for two of these. And so you end up having like fights within the parties as they try to figure out like which quadrant they're going to occupy or they stretch across multiple. And certainly in the Republican Party, you have a fight right now between sort of a market-based economics party that is a little more, you know, like teetering between socially reactionary and a little more so like accepting of the way the country is changing. And then a more populist economics party that is much more socially reactionary, which is certainly what Trump's rhetoric was, if not what his governance record has been, and sort of where you see a Tucker Carlson or a Josh Hawley trying to go. Now, in a multi-party system, I think you, your your view is that we would have a party sort of representing each of these quadrants more separately. And so does that just lead you to a world in which the sort of economically populist but socially reactionary party is dominant? Like, is it, And is that a better world? Um, I, I don't know if they'd be dominant. Uh, you know, I, I think what you'd wind up, I mean, I'm not sure you would wind up with the, the four parties perfectly occupying the, the quadrants and you might, uh, you might wind up with five or six parties. But, you know, if you look at public opinion in the United States, you know, broadly 60, 70% of people support the, the Democrats economic programs. So those are those are broadly popular, but yet they can't pass because of the way the Republican coalition is structured holding together, uh, you know, the, the populists who are socially conservative, but economically liberal, and, you know, and therefore vote based on 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 the social issues, rather than the economic issues. Now, I think what you would you might see different coalitions on different issues, which was what we saw in our earlier four party system, uh, you know, in which the U.S. passed a, a pretty broad social welfare state and, you know, kind of went a little bit back and forth on civil rights, social issues. I mean, that's an area where we're much more divided as a country, I think. Now, I think the the, the last several years, the country has moved more left on the, the cultural social issues, largely in reaction to Donald Trump and perhaps some changing demographics. But the challenge is that those are incredibly polarizing zero-sum issues. And if you put them into a binary politics that's also divided by re geography and, and all of these other stacked identities, that's a recipe for setting democracy on fire. If you split them up among a few different parties and allow different parties to kind of have different ways of dealing with immigration, different ways with, of dealing with religious freedom, uh, then I, I think you at least allow for uh, some way to, to find some compromises on those issues. Now, I'm not going to say that those issues won't continue to be divisive, but I think part of the 
problem with our political system and why the, the temperature is through the roof and everybody's going crazy is because it feels like every election, the entire sense of who are we as a nation is going to be at stake. And if the other side gets into power, they're going to use that power to impose this vision that seems totally anathema to our side. And, you know, that is a that that is a, a psychological consequence of this two party system. But didn't you agree earlier that a common conceptual mistake we make about voters is that they vote based on ideal policy as opposed to partisanship? And I think partisanship here is functionally standing in for identity and identity claims. What sort of group do you feel yourself to be in? What sort of country do you feel yourself to be in? One thing I noticed in your book, and one of my uh, the, the the spaces where I'm a little bit less convinced, is when you imagine the multi-party system, you imagine a much more substantive policy bargaining space than the one we have now. But it's not clear to me why the same dynamics wouldn't take over, and in some cases couldn't even be worse. Maybe you would have more parties out competing each other on claims of identity or more reactionary views of what it means to be an American, um, or if you're on the other side of this, like much more woke views. And it would be even harder to get any agreement. Um, you would just have things collapsing into 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 more fracture. So why should I believe that policy and substantive bargaining will have a purchase in a multi-party system that it doesn't have in a in a two-party system where there are plenty of incentives to bargain, there are plenty of incentives to compromise. You have the filibuster, which makes it so you can't pass anything, and still you can't get any bargaining done. I mean, I think one of the reasons why you should expect more substantive policy in multi-party systems is because that's uh, what you see in multi-party systems is, is that the parties actually stand more clearly for particular policies. Uh, you know, if you watch the, the Democratic convention, you know, there wasn't a lot of policy there. It was all about how dangerous Donald Trump would be. If you watch the Republican convention, there was even less policy there. It was all about how, you know, how Joe Biden wants to set the country on fire and and uh, turn America into something else that you won't even recognize. The reason that parties do that in the U.S. and stand in for, you know, there's negative partisanship, there's just kind of blurring of the lines is because there's actually not a ton of agreement on policy. But if you think about the Democratic primary in which there were multiple candidates and you could view that as a stand in for uh, multi-party democracy, the candidates couldn't say my opponent is terrible and, you know, blah, blah, blah. The candidates actually had to come out and stand for different policies. And that created a space where you know it allowed voters to to kind of have a, a more substantive policy debate because there were more ideas there. The two-party system creates a dynamic in which the parties actually don't have to really offer much in the way of policy and don't have to stand for all that much. So, so partisan takes over. The other point is that partisanship is just not quite as much of a driving identity in multi-party systems because voters change parties more frequently because it's a lot easier to move you know one party to the left or one party to the right and still not feel like you're being a traitor to your side and so as a result the, the identity just becomes less totalizing like it is in the US so it's you know it's not to say that voters are totally policy driven but i think they are more policy driven and there's just less negative partisanship in a multi-party system because you can't just say, well, the other side's terrible, you know, vote for me. We hear the phrase lesser of two evils a lot in American politics. But, you know, if you Google the phrase lesser of three evils, which I, I did as part of the crack research for my book, the only reference I could find was a, a, a martial arts film, uh, which was terribly reviewed and did extremely poorly. I have to say that the methodologies being employed today by political scientists are just more and more impressive. It's a real... It's a real remarkable quantitative <laughs> rigor. Let me let me offer another challenge. And and I want to say here, just to put my cards on the table, I would pass your bill in a second, and we're going to get to what it is and, and how it works. But I, I want to make sure we've sort of like kicked the tires of this pretty hard. All right. So I think there's an argument to be made that it is not the two-party system that is creating this distinction. So we talked earlier about how the system does not currently put whoever wins more votes or even a plurality of votes into office um, routinely. 
Uh, we have things like the filibuster, but not only the filibuster. You can take the filibuster out, and America still has more veto points than any other um, advanced democracy. And so it's just very hard to pass anything in our system and basically impossible under the current conditions. And if you put multi-parties into that system, you would also have like very little policy happening. One theory I hold about American politics is one reason it is so identity forward right now is that policymaking itself has become nearly impossible. And so if parties cannot come in, promise to do things, do them, and then show the American people like, hey, look at this great thing we did and how it's improving your life. You should put us back in power. They're going to default to claims about national identity, racial identity, uh, et cetera, because they have to run on symbolism because they can't credibly run on policy. Now, Democrats promise all kinds of policies to some degree, although lesser so, although less so, so do Republicans. But that how much of what you're looking for here would simply be achieved by getting rid of the Electoral College, getting rid of the filibuster, you know, gerrymandering, et cetera, that you could like if a two-party system was a governable two-party system, an almost parliamentary two-party system, then it would work just fine. Okay. So uh, let's let's just just put a put a proposal on the table. Uh, You know, are we saying that uh, Democrats add D.C. and Puerto Rico to the Senate, we make a national popular vote, and that kind of balances things out. And maybe yeah, let you me, know, yeah, it, let, let, let's p- propose here basically what I would call like the idealized or um, like a mo- a model two party system where it's okay. actually a democracy, and everybody who is a citizen is actually represented by a member of Congress and, and by a member of the U.S. Senate, and that like the the Senate can pass bills with a majority of the vote, and the rare occasions one party controls. You have a great thing about how rare it actually is to see a trifecta governance in America. Like it, it's hard, um, and so. Yeah. I want to know how much work the unusual impediments of the American two-party system are, is doing here in your argument versus how much it's actually two versus four parties. Because like, let's say you did something that added more parties but didn't take care of these other issues, you might just end up in the same problems. Right. We would still have a separation of powers system. We're not We're not like moving to full Westminster. No, we're, we're, we're still America. Okay. 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 We're not rewriting the constitution. Okay. So now, like, I mean, the idea I I, I think is that, or or at least the implicit idea of defending a two-party system is that we should let one party get into power and push forward its agenda, and then we should judge the results. And if we don't like them, we can vote the bums out and let the other party have a chance. Is that, is that a fair assessment of, of like what you think would, would be better about that? Yes, I am saying that because the context was part of our conversation is why would people care more about policy in a multi-party system? I am saying maybe the reason partisanship and symbolic issues are so powerful in our system right now is policymaking is functionally impossible. That's not a two-party versus four-party question. That is a are do you have a system in which governance of any kind of majority that is plausible can be done or not? Okay. So now, I mean, I know you're not proposing the Westminster system, but like we we have an example of this, which is the British system, which is a system in which majorities get total control over the government and there's no separation of powers. You know, the House of Lords is pretty much minimal power. So you get, you know, majoritarian government and you get it good and hard. And uh, nobody's looking at the UK as a as a shining example of how democracy is supposed to work uh, right now, uh, in part because the, the UK is suffering from the same urban rural division as the US. And because the UK has the same first past the post system, there's also this problem of the party that gets only a plurality of the votes and sometimes less votes winds up with a majority in parliament. It's the same system that New Zealand had, and it was a disaster. And that's why New Zealand in the 1990s became a proportional democracy and the voters there overwhelmingly supported that. And they've been much better since. And now we we hold up New Zealand as a as a thriving democracy. But I want to talk a little bit more about the the sort of idealized Westminster system or the idealized like let the party in power uh, have a have a shot and govern. Now, you know, that theory kind of like it makes sense in the Westminster system because like the party that controls parliament really does have a chance to get uh, it's it's legislation through uh, unless, of course, it's internally divided, as it has been over Brexit. But 
even there, you have the problem that the parties kind of, and this has always been the criticism of UK politics, that the swings are, are, are actually too wild. Conservatives get in power, they do something. Labor gets in power, they do something the opposite. And, you know, there's kind of this, this, with this whiplash quality. Now, in the US system, we don't have that ability for a, for a simple majority in one house. Instead, we have, you know, bicameralism plus presidentialism with a veto. It's not, we don't have a particularly strong president as compared to Latin American countries, but, you know, we still have presidentialism with a strong executive branch, plus judicial review, plus a, a fair degree of federalism, uh, you know, which, which makes it really hard for voters to tell who's in charge. And yes, you know, even if you had one party total control in Washington, you know, they're, they're, it's still really hard to, to get stuff done because the parties themselves are, are, are a little bit internally uh, divided sometimes. Uh, but I, I think even the even bigger problem with that is, is the allegation of accountability because partisanship in our binary system is really strong. And how's the economy doing? Well, it depends if you're a Republican or a Democrat. Uh, and so the the ideal of a, of a let's evaluate the party in power, and then if they don't deliver, uh, we'll pick the other party, assumes that, that voters are standing astride partisanship, don't have any loyalty, or at least a lot of them don't have any loyalty, so they're able to judge the facts correctly. They're not. I, I agree with this, but how how is that different? I mean, four parties makes them more able to judge the parties correctly? It doesn't just make it more complicated? Well, now now we're getting into a different theory of government. So there, there's if we think about But these are the two I'm trying to compare. Yeah, okay. So let's 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 think about that. So the the the, the promise of a majoritarian two-party system is that you get accountability, you can put a party in government and see what it does and then if you like the results you can vote for another party. Now, I you know, that may work sort of in the Westminster system in which there's, you know, a clear majority in the in the in the parliament can act. I don't think it, it makes that much sense in the U.S. system because it's really hard to tell who's in charge. And, and you know, so the alternate view of this is the, the proportional view of democracy is that, well, actually, what we want is a legislature that's representative. And we're going to we're going to trade a little bit of accountability uh, for representation. So we're going to vote for parties that stand for more targeted policies or more tar targeted agendas. And then we're going to send our representatives to the legislature and they're going to form a government and they're going to bargain amongst themselves. And we're not going to be able to hold them accountable for results in the same way, but we are going to be able to tell whether they are adequately representing our views. So, you know, it, it's, you know, all, all politics is, is, is coalition. And, you know, in some ways you could think of the fundamental difference between majoritarian and proportional democracy as that in majoritarian democracy, the coalition happens before the election and in proportional democracy, the coalition making happens after the election. And, you know, that's, that's how it works. And then the question is, what are the consequences of that? And, you know, the consequence that uh, if you want to do a knock on multi-party democracy, it's that, you know, voters don't really know what what government they're getting exactly. Uh, but, you know, in some ways, that's been the, the, the way that American democracy has worked when it's worked well, is that voters don't know what bargains members of Congress are going to make when they get to Washington and, and who's going to trade what for what to get some some bipartisan bill through. All they know is that they're electing somebody to represent them. And they can only judge how well that person is is representing them. Desert Clan Show will return after a quick message from our sponsors. You have four pieces to your big bill. Single winner ranked choice voting for the Senate. A bigger house, you increase the house to 700 members. Multi-winner ranked choice voting for the house. And then an end to congressional primary. So I want to go through these in, in, in order. Single winner ranked choice voting for the Senate. What is that and why would it help? So ranked choice voting, which um, is which some of your listeners may know, is a system whereby voters get to rank candidates in order of preference. And then as candidates get eliminated from the bottom up, the votes transfer. So what it means is that you can vote for a third party without your vote being a spoiler. 
And this has been implemented in a number of cities throughout the U.S. It's the you know it's been in in use in Australia for over a hundred years in Ireland. And you know, the the effect is that you get a politics that's a little bit more oriented towards uh, towards the middle, a little bit more compromise oriented, and voters feel like they're better able to express themselves. Now, you know, if I could rewrite the Constitution. I would absolutely make the Senate proportional, which is what James Madison wanted to do. But given that we have a Senate that has uh, single winner elections because there's only two senators per state and they're not elected at the same time, I think that's the best we can do for the Senate. So then tell me about why it would make sense to expand the House to 700 people. Well, the House has been at 435 members since uh, since 1911. A lot of people don't don't know this is sort of fun history. Is that Madison's the, what what became the Bill of Rights was actually 12 amendments. The first amendment was an apportionment amendment in which Madison said, you know, and when we get up to 100 members, the House should be uh, House district should be 30,000 people. Up to 200 members, it should be. 50,000. And then after that, that that's as that's as big as it should get uh, per, per district size. And now we have about 800,000 people per district. That's by far the largest in the world. And, you know, it, it's really hard for uh, members to adequately represent constituencies well when there's, you know, 800,000 of them. Uh, and so I think a larger house would bring members of Congress closer to their constituencies. And I think it would be better for democracy. Now, you know, I especially like it because I think it pairs well with the multi-member ranked choice voting, which is the idea that rather than having a single district, you combine three to five districts into one multi-winner district, the top, you know, so we'll say it's a five-member district, the top five winners uh, go to Congress, and then it becomes proportional, like Ireland and like what Australia does for its Senate. And so you can have multiple parties. You don't have to win, you know, a plurality in any given geographical region. What And what that means is you'd get a lot more diversity. diversity. You'd get some Bay Area Republicans, for example, in Congress, and you'd get some, you know, more Democrats from Arkansas or Oklahoma, or probably what you would have is just different parties you'd have, you know, I, I would, my guess would be that you'd probably have about two to three parties on the left, two to three parties on the right, although the left-right you know, uh, spectrum would seem less clear as the parties evolve. And you know, that would, I think, be much better for uh, democracy in America. And then an end to congressional primaries. And an end to congressional primaries, uh, you know, because we have these primaries where you know, very few people participate. And we don't really need to have congressional primaries if we have multi-party proportional elections. Uh, instead, we can let parties pick their candidates. And you know, parties have an incredibly important role to play in a democracy. You can't have a modern mass democracy without strong parties. And the way to have stronger parties is to give them control over who gets to carry the party label and for parties to have clear brands and for there to be institutional gatekeepers who can keep yahoos like Donald Trump out of the party and or, or all these QAnon people who are you know winning in Republican primaries. And I think if you combine those, uh, you would have a, a much better functioning democracy in this country. I mean, I, I don't want to say it will be perfect, but I think it won't be on the brink of collapse. Why should I believe any of this is possible? You currently have a two-party duopoly. Most of the reforms that we're talking about here would somehow have to go through either the Congress or state legislatures that are dominated by the two parties that presumably enjoy a system in which they are the only ones who can win. How, how does how, you actually spent some time on trying to make this, trying to convince people this kind of thing can happen because it has happened in the past. So how has it happened and, and why do you think it can happen now when so little seems able to happen now? Well, there have been numerous major democracy reforms in the U.S. We're talking about the progressive era. The progressive era uh, led to direct uh, initiatives and referenda, led to the direct primary the direct election of senators. Senators had previously been appointed. And, you know, women's suffrage, which we are celebrating the 100th anniversary of. All of these things which seemed impossible when they started 
And what happened was that a lot of people, including some people in politics, said this this system doesn't work and this system is corrupt and the system is broken and we ought to try something different. And I think there are some tremendous similarities between this current era and the the late Gilded Age, early progressive era when it comes to the extent to which people are really dissatisfied with politics in which inequality is incredibly high in which you know there are there's there's a, a flowering of social movements demanding really big change and the country is having this kind of identity crisis. And so looking at what happened in the progressive era and comparing it to today makes me feel like actually major democracy reform is possible. And you know, I mentioned New Zealand a little bit uh, ago. Uh, New Zealand is, you know, it's a, obviously a smaller country, but it's a it's a country that in the 1990s changed from a first past the post Westminster two party system to a multi party system. And by every measure, New Zealand is is doing incredibly well and is constantly one of the, the top performing democracies. You know, I think the the other challenge here is to is in when thinking about what's possible is to appreciate the fact that the parties themselves are not monoliths. And there are a lot of Republicans and a lot of Democrats who serve in Washington and like feel like the entire system is fundamentally broken. They don't like being foot soldiers in this endless partisan warfare where they go to Washington and they do nothing except for, you know, go on go on TV and, and fundraise and, and send out press releases. They, they want to actually do something and solve some big problems. And, you know, again, I think there are a lot more divisions within both parties than the uh, the, the national hyperpartisan conflict allows us to see. And, you know, if you propose this system, I think there are a lot of rank and file members who would say, yeah, actually, maybe that would be better. Now, is Nancy Pelosi going to like it? No. Is Chuck Schumer going to like it? No. But, you know, th the reforms happen from the bottom up. And there are these moments in which there is a revolt of the bottom uh, and things get overturned. The other thing that, that I would note is that these reforms are also quite popular in the in the places, in the cities and in the states where uh where campaigns are being run, their you know main voters twice enacted ranked choice voting uh, as a as a popular initiative, uh, despite efforts by Republicans to kill it. Uh, in Massachusetts, there is a ballot initiative happening this fall on ranked choice voting. Question two, it's been endorsed by Bill Weld and and Deval Patrick and uh, and Elizabeth Warren and, and a bunch of folks left and right in Massachusetts. This creates a question, though, that I, I, I sometimes think about because you tell a bit of the story in in the book of these past efforts and the direct election of senators, um, you know, uh, quite long ago. And just when you look in that period in American life, the political system and the Constitution are more plastic. We are passing constitutional amendments reasonably often, actually, um, and now we pass them basically never. We see a lot of experimentation. There isn't this veneration where we seem to consider the Constitution and our political system somehow untouchable. It's like the further we get away from the founding, the more we treat it not as something mended, but as some sort of holy writ handed down to us by, by the founders from Mount Sinai. And it's strange. Um, and, and so the, the bit of pushback I want to give you, and I, I don't want to focus too much on this because the fact that things are difficult doesn't make them not worth talking about. But you know how hard everything is to get through this system. I mean, you study this more closely than I do. And so you know that bottom-up projects right now have a lot of trouble, um, even when they're very popular, because they can't get things passed. Um, the partisanship takes over, the legislatures block it, the Senate has a filibuster. And so one, this is one of my really big concerns for, for the American political experiment, that I think the way we think it should work is we organize people and we um, push, you know, and we push. And then when enough people get organized and they push hard enough, things change. And that really, there are not that many recent examples of that happening. Not literally none, but I mean, look at things like the mass movements on gun control, look at things like the mass movements for Black Lives Matter, um, and look at things for that matter for, for the Republican side, even for the mass movement, you know, to, to, to repeal Obamacare, which was popular for a minute at least. So, so like, give me one more version of this. So, yes, like, let's say that there's frustration of the party system. 
what is the mechanism? Do you imagine this happening state by state and then just slowly the other states fall? Like, is it is it is that the, the path it takes? How do you actually see this playing out specifically, not just like public support then does what? Well, you know, I think it, most likely it will play out state by state. You know, I, Alaska is also uh, voting on ranked choice voting. And, you know, I could see initiatives. There are I think, 26 or 27 states that allow for initiatives. Uh, you know, there, there may be some legislatures as well that decide that they want to go this way. And, you know, like uh, there's that old old Hemingway line about how did how did we go broke slowly and all at once? And, and I sort of feel that that's how political change happens. It happens in these kind of tectonic ways in which, you know, there's there's nothing for a while. There's pressure building up and then there's an earthquake. Uh, that, that this is how we, we think of systems change in kind of this gradual way. But, you know, when you look at the history of American democracy, uh, there have been these moments in which a lot of things changed really quickly. Uh, you, know, civil, uh, you know, civil rights, there was a lot of pressure building up for a long time. And at some point, things changed and they changed very quickly. And, you know, I, I mean, I can't predict the future, but, you know, it does seemed to me that the level of frustration with the political system and the brokenness of the political system are really hitting a breaking point. And I think we're, we're seeing it play out in real time uh, as we get closer and closer to this election. And at some point, uh, the, the cooler heads and as well as people who, who have a, you know, and people who have a stake in the system have to say, look, what we're doing is not working. And, you know, here are some other alternatives. I, I, I will note that there is a, a Pew poll out recently in which 62% of Americans said that we need fundamental changes to the way our system works. And, you know, I will note that nothing that I propose in my reform package would require a constitutional amendment. It's all totally constitutional. I mean, I, I, if we want to get into the constitutional amendment territory, we could we could really dream. But all all this would just require an act of Congress. And, you know, heck, if Democrats have the, the trifecta in early 2021, you know, maybe it's time to say, let's try something totally different rather than just like adding D.C. and getting rid of the filibuster and, you know, getting into court packing, you know, uh, rather than escalating uh, and just raising the temperature higher, maybe it's time to step back and say, well, what would a different and potentially more workable political system even look like? And you know, let's use our power to do that instead of trying to get some narrow advantage that then we'll lose two or four years later. I think that's too optimistic, and 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 I think that in this way, <laughs> as I understand right. the way, as I understand the way these reforms would play out, one of their components is democratization. So under these reforms, you you're not really looking at the the electoral college. Um, although I assume I, I think I know where you would stand on that, um, and and your four national popular vote compact, but um, but these would reduce the discrepancy between what people want and what they get. And as I understand American politics right now, that discrepancy is a partisan divide. Um, Republicans see that as a danger to them. And so I don't know. I mean, one of the things I think is very tricky right now is that virtually anything that makes America more small d democratic, more responsive as a government has become a partisan fight because that's seen as a power play for for Democrats. I mean, too, you know, as you were just saying about like DC and Puerto Rico, like sometimes it gets talked about as narrow partisan advantage that's letting people fucking have political representation. It, it drives me so crazy when senators talk about that as some kind of plot or Armageddon option or, or, or anything else. Like that's just how this country is supposed to work. It's democracy. Like convince me that convince me that I'm too pessimistic here. Why do you think that if Democrats came into power and said, "Great, we're going to rank choice voting and instant runoff voting, and we're going to make sure that people actually get what they want," in an era when not getting what they want has continuously brought Republicans into power, Republicans would be like, "Hey, that's a great point." Well, I, you know, I think you are uh, reifying re the the Republican Party as this you know singular unit now. Uh, yeah, there are elements in the Republican Party that uh, feel that way, but I think that there are also a lot of factions and groups and you know, representatives in the Republican Party who feel really trapped in this system and understand that they are in a system that is, uh, you know, is 
going to work against them at some point and you know, are, are quite terrified of what would happen if Democrats get that majority as as the current Democratic Party. And the uh, benefit of a proportional system uh, is that some of these groups would actually, you know, have a chance to share power from time to time rather than being a permanent minority. I mean, I think that's the the, the fact some ways it, it should be the Republican Party and the, the groups in the Republican Party in particular who should actually be most welcoming of these reforms because they mean that it will be harder for the Democratic Party when eventually the demographics uh, push Democrats into power despite the hurdles. Uh, it will be easier for the you know the the evangelical Christian groups and other groups to to actually have some some modest influence and participation in a national government. And you know I, I note that the politics of electoral reform in Western Europe in the early. 20th century in which a lot of European democracies went from being majoritarian to uh, proportional systems, uh, the politics often involved conservative parties saying, hold on, suddenly we have enfranchisement of workers in cities and the socialists are going to take over. And if the socialists get majority power, they're going to do crazy things. So let's support this proportional system, which is you know more of a peace treaty and ensures that we'll have some participation and that the socialists won't get total control. So uh, to me, it seems like Republicans, and, and we all know this and Republicans know this, is that they're, they're fighting a losing war on, on demography uh, that at some point will catch up with them. And this is a way of, of reaching a peace treaty uh, that would prevent the Democratic Party from pushing a, a majoritarian agenda on them someday, potentially. From your lips to the Republican Party's ears, I hope. Um, let me let me ask our final question here, which is what are three books you'd recommend? Three books that I would recommend. Um, you know, one is E. E. Schatzneider's *The Semi-Sovereign People*, uh, you know, which is a really wonderful. Uh, book in, in a number of ways. One, it's it's really kind of the book that that helped me to think about politics in a multidimensional way. And also, it's just a beautifully written book. Um, yeah, a, a second book, and, and I know this is uh, one of your favorites as well, Liliana Mason's Uncivil Agreement, you know, which I just think is a brilliant book and really helped me to understand just the dangerous psychology of the way this binary sorted two-party system drives us all crazy and just, just the you know, I think I think it's just a, a really important book, and uh, you know, a third book. Um, it's a book that I think might be a little more unfamiliar. It's a book called A Different Democracy: American Government in a uh, Thirty-One uh, Country Perspective, and it's uh, written as four political scientists, but the lead author is Stephen Taylor. And you know, it was I read it a while ago, and it was one of these books that really opened my eyes to the fact. Uh, that the U.S. has a really weird system of government. And I think we don't appreciate how odd we do democracy until we look at what the rest of the world does. Lee Drutman, thank you very much. Hey, my pleasure, Ezra. Thank you to Lee Drutman for being here, to all of you for being here, to Roger Karma for research, to Jeffrey Geld for producing the Ezra Klein Show's Vox Media podcast production. 